As you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. We've been in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we find ourselves in chapter 8 this morning, in the middle of the chapter, and we'll look at verses 18 through 27, Lord willing. The whole of Romans 8 is dedicated largely to the ministry of God's Holy Spirit. But here, Paul makes a transition in these verses, in this particular section, from the present ministry of God's Spirit to the future glory of God's creation, and we would say also God's children, of which the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. If there was a theme to this particular section of chapter 8, it would be suffering and glory. There is suffering and glory in the life of a believer. And I believe Paul presents this theme in a marvelous way with three movements. First of all, he gives us the contrast between suffering and glory. And we see that in verse 18. And then secondly... The sufferings and glory of God's creation. And we see that in verses 19 through 22. And then thirdly, the sufferings and glory of God's children. And we see that in verses 23 through 27. So, along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time of study together. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth And the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. We pray that you would move on our hearts and our lives. That you would draw us closer to you and some for the first time to you. That, Lord, you would get all the glory when it's over. Pray all these things confidently now in the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice what I believe Paul is calling a contrast between suffering and glory. In verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, the sufferings of this present time relates to what Paul said to us last time in verse 17. You remember that passage ended with verse 17, which says, We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering leads to glory in the Christian life. And the Christian life has always been characterized by suffering. The central reason for our suffering is because we're not at home. We're not at home in this world. We're aliens. We're passing through this life and heading to our future home in heaven. I remember my trip to Costa Rica in 2014, and I didn't speak the language. I was only there for four days, but I felt like an alien. I couldn't talk to anyone. I had to have someone translate. 
I didn't know how to ask, where is the restaurant or where is the restroom? I went into a Walmart and asked for something, and the lady misunderstood what I was saying, and later on I realized what I was saying, and I was very much ashamed of what I was saying and asking for, and even though I had no intention of doing that, I was on edge all the time. I felt like an alien, because I knew I wasn't at home. I wasn't at home. Well, we're aliens here. And Paul is comparing two ages, or two eons, we might say, the present and the future. This temporal life on earth and eternal life with God. And these two ages, or eons, have different values and different priorities, especially in connection to things like personal meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. People that live for this world only be very much caught up in self-fulfillment, whereas the Christian is called to self-denial. If this is the only realm that we have, then most people live serving themselves. But Christ calls us, by his word and example, to serve others. If you live for this world alone, you more than likely will pursue pleasure. God calls us as Christians to pursue holiness. And so in summary, we have the way of the world on one hand and the way of the cross on the other. Now, Jesus did not come to this world to search for meaning, purpose, comfort, or success. He did not enter time and space to glorify or serve himself or to demand that others serve him. Scripture is clear concerning the person and work of Christ. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus himself said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be saved or to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On another occasion, someone said, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. In Mark 8, 20, and Christ said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, signifying the discomfort and the suffering that would characterize his life. In Luke 9.23, as we read this morning, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Even the Old Testament is clear with regard to suffering of the righteous. Psalm 34.15 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And so sufferings of this present time refers primarily to to our relationship to Christ, including our union with Him in crucifixion. We are not here to be comfortable. We're here to be on alert. We're here to walk through this life not finding our comfort or our peace in this particular age and time. We find those things in Christ Himself because of our union with Him. So we're passing through. And what are we heading for? The glory that is to be revealed to us. 18b. Christ came to earth to suffer and die and subsequently enter his glory. It's always been that way. With the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, Jesus had to explain to them what was going on. They were losing hope because Christ was gone. And he started to explain from all of the scriptures all the things about himself 
And he seemed dumbfounded to say, don't you know that the Christ had to suffer first before entering his glory? That's the pattern for Christ's followers. Now, the world knows nothing of this. The average pagan looks at suffering and blames God or simply goes on with a fatalistic view of life. Whatever will be, will be. This is my lot. As a result, a pagan can be hypersensitive about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. If you don't believe in a God, you don't believe in an afterlife, a heaven or a hell, then all you have is in the here and now. And if you'll watch carefully in the world, that's the way most people live these days. That all I have is in the here and now. Unbelievers often see themselves as entitled to avoid suffering. And they often blame others when they find themselves in a place of suffering or difficulty. I think the proliferation of liability suits in our own country is indication of this phenomenon. People sue each other for frivolous reasons. Somebody has to pay. And so the glory that is to be revealed to us refers primarily to our relationship to Christ and our union with Him, not in crucifixion, but in our resurrected bodies. We're sort of half-saved right now. We're certainly redeemed by the blood of Christ, but our bodies are not yet resurrected. They're suffering decay and difficulty, and the older you get, the more decay you see. I promise you. And so we have this phenomenon of suffering and glory. And may I also say that you will not appreciate the glory that is to be revealed to you unless you have a relationship to Christ, unless you have a solid hope in Him. That is necessary. It needs to be precious to us because that's what creates the, the contrast between the two. We're going to see more of that in just a few moments. But for now, we just have this contrast between suffering and glory. And Paul goes on to outline two spheres. The sphere of God's creation and the sufferings and glory in that created order in 19 and 22. And then the sphere of the sufferings and glory of God's children. So let's look first of all at the sufferings and glory of God's creation, verses 19 through 22. Paul personifies the creation, much as we often personify nature. Look at verse 19. The anxious groaning or longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Psalm 96, verses 11 and 12. To get the Lord's vantage point on His created order. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all the hills are all that fills it. And the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. The created order is a living, vibrant thing. Plants and animals are living. And God created them that way. I have to constantly remind myself of this when I'm getting up and sitting down to let the dog out or to feed her. It's important to have a biblical understanding of animals and plants. And Paul goes on to make three statements about the past, the present, and the future of the created order. First of all, you'll notice in verse 20, 
The creation was subjected to frustration or futility, some of the translations say. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. The judgment of God fell upon the natural order. All this is due to the following of Adam and Eve. We read about that this morning. We read about this in the first scripture lesson, Genesis 3. The curse went beyond Adam and Eve to all of God's creation. And the word for futility there it means frustration, emptiness, purposelessness, transitoriness. The basic idea is emptiness, whether of purpose or of result. It's the word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses in Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. The writer of Ecclesiastes, most likely King Solomon, said, Everything I put my hand to, no matter how much money I have, how many resources I have, I cannot seem to find meaning and purpose and significance. I cannot find a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, Paul tells us that that's what the created order was subjected to. Not of its own will, but because of the Lord because of the fall. And yet there's hope. The very last two words of verse 20, in hope. Well, in hope of what? We read that in verse 21. The creation was subjected to frustration or futility. Secondly, the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Look at verse 21. That the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. See, the universe is running down. Nature is enslaved and locked in an unending cycle so that conception and birth and growth are followed relentlessly by decline, decay, death, and decomposition. Nevertheless, liberation is coming. So Paul says, in the past, it was subjected to frustration. Secondly, the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Verse 22, right now in the present. Third, the whole creation is groaning right up to this present time. The whole creation groans and suffers pains of childbirth together until now. Its groans are not meaningless symptoms of despair. On the contrary, they're like birth pains of childbirth, for they provide assurance of the coming emergence of a new order. In Jewish apocalyptic literature, Israel's current sufferings were frequently called the woes of the Messiah, or the birth pangs of the Messianic age. That is, they were seen as the painful prelude to the victorious arrival of Messiah. And Jesus himself used the same expression in his own apocalyptic discourse. He said, or he spoke of false teachers, wars, and famines, and earthquakes as the beginning of birth pangs. Fascinating. Or a new age. These were the preliminary signs. You know, when we look at the created order, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's living, it's vibrant. But every time a tsunami happens 
or an earthquake, or a tornado hits, or a hurricane, or there is disease and famine. In places that get too much water, there are floods. In other places, too little. All of these things demonstrate the birth pangs. All of these things demonstrate the created order under sin. God did not create life to be this way any more than He created Adam and Eve to fall into sin. So whenever these natural things happen and people stick a fist, why did a good God allow this sort of thing to happen? God is not to blame at that point. The whole of creation is convulsing and it's moving to a point of restoration and hope. What does all this lead us to? Well, I'd like to say this morning that it gives us a Christian view of the environment. A Christian view of the environment. Unbelief has a tendency to lead to a careless, one of two extremes, a careless, selfish disdain for the environment. That is, all that matters is that I get what I want from it. And we can see greed feeding into that sort of thing. It doesn't matter about the environment, so what? As long as I become rich and prosperous, I can use it for my own means and ends. The other extreme is a false sense of responsibility to protect the earth from destruction. We see that a lot these days in the whole of global warming. This mindset sees no creator, and therefore there's no stress on stewardship. It's just a stress on survival. It's one thing to say I'll be concerned about the environment because I was made a steward of it by God. It's another thing to say unless I act, the environment is going to be destroyed. That's putting a lot on yourself as a human being. And both of these mindsets fall short of God's mindset in the Scripture, God's mark. See, belief in Christ leads to two things among many. Number one, seeing all of creation is made by God and given to us as humans as a stewardship. God placed Adam in the garden as a custodian, as a caretaker for all the plants and the animal life on earth. Therefore, Christians have a responsibility to practice conservation in connection to the environment. We are not to worship the environment but we're not to abuse the environment. But cultivate the earth and its resources for the good of all humanity. Just like the Sabbath. The environment was made for man, not man for the environment. And whenever we give too high of a place to the environment, we lose sight of the God over the environment, the God who is controlling all things. And heaven and earth will not pass away except by His Word. That doesn't give us a right to abuse, but it ought to lead us away from worship. People these days run to one or two extremes, and it's the Christian's mindset that needs to help and inform society this is the way to look at God's created order. So seeing all of creation is made by God and given to humans as a stewardship, secondly, knowing that God is in full control of the whole created order, that is, the environment. The earth will not cease to exist until the fulfillment of God's plans. 
Things are hot right now. We hear environmentalists talking about that. It's hot. But what do they say when it's cold? In the wintertime, when it has extreme colds. Don't listen to everything that you hear, or at least process it and think clearly. The earth will not cease to exist until the fulfillment of every last one of God's plans. Thus, Christians should be motivated to protecting God's creation because of the concept of hope and redemption. We share these things with pagans. But I believe the Christian understanding of the environment leads to fine-tuning, where we can make a difference and we can say to our world, go this far with the environment, but not this far. Don't worship the environment. Don't abuse it. We're not supporting either one of those. Just like Jesus, he usually made both camps mad on both sides, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we as Christians need to say, go this far, but not further. Don't worship the environment. Don't abuse it. But let's practice conservation because we are stewards of it. Well, you'll notice the third thing, the sufferings and glory of God's creation first. Now the sufferings and glory of God's children. Look at verses 23 through 27. Verses 22 and 23, an important parallel between God's creation and God's children is established. Verse 22 speaks of the whole creation groaning. Verse 23 speaks of our groaning. This is the Christian dilemma. We're caught in a tension between what God has inaugurated by giving us His Spirit and what we will consummate, what will be consummated in our final adoption and redemption. But in the meantime, we groan with discomfort and longing. What I want you to see in these verses is that Paul highlights uh, six encouragements to us in our what we call half-saved condition. We're already saved, we're redeemed fully and completely in Christ, but we are awaiting the resurrection of the body. And until that time, there's death and there's decay. There is pain, there is disease, there's all those things that have come in the world as a direct result of human sin. Here are the encouragements. First of all, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Look at 23a. Not only this, but we ourselves... Having the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits is the beginning of harvest in antiquity. And it's a pledge of a full harvest later. It's like a down payment. Paul has made the Feast of Weeks, or perhaps has the Feast of Weeks in mind, which celebrated the reaping of the first fruits. It's interesting that this was the very festival on which the Spirit had been given on the day of Pentecost. Isn't that interesting, the connection there? Paul, in other places, described the gift of the Spirit of God as the first installment or the deposit, the down payment or the pledge, which guaranteed future completion of purchase. So although we have not yet received our final adoption and our final redemption, we have already received the Spirit as a foretaste and promise of these blessings. Well, it doesn't stop there. We groan. Look at verse 23b. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. The juxtaposition of the Spirit's indwelling in our groaning should not surprise us. I think it does some people. Some people say, well, Christ is in me. And they have a smile painted on their face all the time, even when they get sick or when they lose a loved one. That's not realistic. The Spirit of God indwells us, but there's also groaning because of the already and the not yet. 
The presence of the Spirit being only the first fruits is a constant reminder of the incompleteness of our salvation. As we share with the creation in the frustration, the bondage to decay and the pain. Why do we groan? We groan because of our fragile bodies. And we groan because of our fallen nature. Daily, we see our bodies wearing down. And daily, we see just how sinful we are and in need of redemption. We have, of course, already been adopted. But there is even a deeper and richer child-father relationship to come when we are fully revealed as His children, as verse 19 says, and conformed to the likeness of His Son, as verse 29 will tell us later. Again, we've already been redeemed, but not our bodies at this time. Already our spirits are alive, but one day the Spirit will also give life to our mortal bodies. More than that, our bodies will be changed by Christ to be like His glorious body. And so bondage to decay will be replaced by the freedom of glory. Now notice in verse 24, In this hope we are saved. Paul says, In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? This phrase bears witness to our decisive past liberation from the guilt and bondage of our sins and from the just judgment of God upon them. Yet we remain, once again, half saved. We have not yet been saved from the outpouring of God's wrath in the day of judgment. We're not going to face that. Nor have we the final vestiges of our sin removed from our human existence, our personality. See, the Bible uses terms like sarks. That refers to flesh. Our flesh must be destroyed. That old man, that sinful nature inside of us. But the body, the Bible uses the word soma. Sarks and soma. Flesh must be destroyed, but the soma, the body, will be raised incorruptible. And that's what we wait for. We were saved in hope of our total liberation. As the creation was subjected to frustration and futility in the hope of being set free from it. We're not there yet. And that's why we groan. We groan even though we smile with joy. And one ought not replace the other. This double hope looks to the future and to things which are unseen right now. Hope that is seen, Paul says, having been realized in our experience, is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he already sees? So you see what Paul is doing? He's saying our hope is that we'll be complete. Our hope is one day we won't have to struggle with the sinful nature anymore. One day we won't have those fusses and fights that we have with our family members. One day we won't have misunderstanding and corruption and greed in society. One day there'll be a time where there is no more tsunami or tornado or hurricanes which wreak havoc because there's a hope. Just like creation will be set straight, so will we. Verse, or a fifth thing, we wait patiently for the fulfillment of our hope. Look at verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. We wait for it eagerly. 
But we are confident of God's promises that the first fruits will be followed by the harvest. Bondage by freedom, decay by incorruption, and labor pains by the birth of a new world. And this whole section is a notable example of what it means to be living in between times. Between difficulty and future destiny. Between the already and the not yet. Between sufferings and glory. We're saved in hope. Brings these things together. And there's a tension between waiting eagerly and waiting patiently. I want you to mark that. In this tension, the correct Christian posture is that of waiting. Waiting eagerly with keen expectation, but waiting patiently. That is, steadfast in the endurance of our trials. And the combination is significant because we're not, so, we're not to wait so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. Now, if that seems difficult, it is. <laughs> it is. It's hard to maintain that balance. Some Christians overemphasize the call to patience. Let's be patient. God takes his time in doing this and that. But left alone, that can lack enthusiasm. And it can lapse into apathy and pessimism. A lot of churches are infected by that sort of thing. They're waiting on the Lord and waiting on the Lord and waiting on the Lord with a result they don't ever do anything. There's no enthusiasm to participate in the kingdom of God and see things come. Others grow impatient of waiting. They're so carried away with enthusiasm that they almost try to force God's hand. They are determined to experience now even what is not available, yet anxious to emerge out of the painful present of suffering and groaning. They talk as if the resurrection's already taken place. Some Christians live that way. They act that way. You know, that was a heresy that the Apostle Paul had to address. In the pastoral, some say the resurrection has already taken place. What drives that sort of thing? It's getting tired and impatient with the suffering. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I want it to be gone, and so I'll adjust my theology to experience things that have not yet been revealed. I'm not yet resurrected. We saw that in the Deeper Life Movement back in the 70s and the 80s. People walk around as if they were oblivious to sin, as if they were oblivious to the effects of sin in their lives, and in others. They were living as if the resurrection had already taken place. But it hasn't. And therefore, we need that sense of balance. And that's where the Spirit comes back into view. Look at verses 26 and 27. How do we maintain that, that balance? The Spirit helps us in our weakness in prayer. I don't know about you, but I often don't know how to pray. If I see God doing a work in my life, and it's a form, what I believe, to be disciplined. There's a part of me that wants it to move on. And there's another part of me that sees the value of it staying. And I don't know what to pray for. I see the evils in life with human trafficking and people being abused. I see those who are terrorists. Do I pray for their elimination or do I pray for their salvation? How do I pray? I pray often, Lord, help me to follow you no matter what. And then financial reversal hits. And now it's really a question of how am I going to continue to follow? 
Am I going to wait patiently through this and yet look to my future home expectantly that one day all things will be made right regardless of my circumstances here? If I get a bad report from the doctor, is that going to shut down my enthusiasm for Christ? If I labor and labor in Christ's church for years, will I become depressed and downtrodden? Or will I maintain that hope that somehow, someway, through it all, God is at work? Often we don't know how to pray, and that's where the Spirit of God comes in with groans too deep for words. And that's not some sort of specialized language. The word there, the adjective, means silence. They're unutterable words. We don't know how to pray, and so Christ is interceding for us, and the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. I look at it this way. I read an article this past week that talked about this verse. One guy talked about his grandmother, how she used to decorate cakes, you know. And she'd take that big uh, uh, glob of icing and put it into this filter type thing. And it would come down and she could put any shape on the end that she wanted to. And she could decorate that cake beautifully. That's what God does with us. The glob is our prayers. We're not sure how to pray. Not sure what to pray for. As I go through this life and I long for something better. I long for deliverance physically. I long to be delivered from my sinful nature. But I'm waiting for the resurrection. God is working in my life. And so I lift up prayers, and the Lord takes those prayers, just like a big glob of icing, and He begins to filter it down to the type of prayer that He wants prayed for His glory and my benefit. What a beautiful picture of the already and the not yet. We're saved in hope. And part of that hope we don't see yet, and we look forward to. And one day we will be delivered from our pain. And we will be delivered home so that we won't have to be aliens in this world ever again. All of this begins with a faith relationship to God's Son, Jesus Christ. You won't know what it is to groan and to see yourself as an alien until you see yourself as a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And that happens whenever you put your faith and trust in his finished work on the cross to satisfy God's demands and to make you righteous in his sight. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. We acknowledge that we groan. We have difficulties in this life. We're not at home. And there's an anxiety that builds because we want to be. So, Father, I pray that you would bless us, that you would give us patience and yet enthusiasm while we wait to serve you looking forward to the hope of the future. Lord, give those who are downcast today hope, a sense of hope. Father, I pray that you would encourage all of us that we have no hope except in the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Lord, save those who are lost and disciple those who are saved. And get all the glory as we continue to wait in a balanced way for your return.
We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.